teaching that's offered now. Um, everybody else, uh, we will stay in here together and uh, think about um, a new series that we're starting today. We finished um, last Sunday the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope that was a blessing to you. I was sure uh, challenged, encouraged by it. Um, but this next uh, couple of Sundays and on Christmas Eve, we're going to uh, talk about something that we've simply entitled up here, the, the saving one, the saving one. Um, so that'll be the following two Sundays, today, next Sunday, and then, uh, I guess I didn't say that right, that'll be the one following Sunday and Christmas Eve, so that's where we're headed. For those of you who are planners, you want to think out even further than that, um, we are going to do, um, after that, two weeks uh, covering a book called Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. So when attendance might be low, what should you do? <laughs> Talk about a book like that. So it'll be great. Uh, looking forward to uh, what the Lord will teach us there. And then as we get our way into the new year, um, the second Sunday, Lord willing, in uh, January, we'll start the book of Mark and uh, spend next year together uh, studying that great uh, gospel. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, Today, we're going to do something that's pretty different than, than what we, we ordinarily do, and so I want to take a couple of minutes in case you're, you're new or you're very confused because you're not new. Uh, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes and try to explain uh, what we're going to do and why we would do it. Uh, the vast majority of Sundays here at Church on Mill, uh, your pastors and staff uh, will pick a book in the Bible. We start from the very beginning of it and then just work our way, paragraph by paragraph, all the way through the rest uh, of the book. And uh, we'll pick up, so, you know, we finished Ecclesiastes last week because the week before we were in the second to last passage. And that is something called, uh, if you're curious about the, the, the dorky theological language people use in, in schools to talk about that, it's called consecutive exposition. And all that means is con consecutive means it's, it's uh, serial, it happens in, in order, and then exposition meaning the, the preaching is aiming to say what the passage says. And so we believe that the, the, the preacher has no authority at all to say whatever he wants. He only has authority to say what God says, that anything else isn't preaching. And that what we need when we get together on Sunday is to hear from God, not to hear from merely me or anybody else who might stand here. And we believe the very best possible way to make sure that that's what's happening, to, do, to try to ensure that that's what's taking place through the preaching of God's Word, is that the, the steady... If you could think of, of, of this moment as... Uh, we're sitting down at a meal, and the, the, the steady diet of what we want on that plate, we meaning all of us, what we need on that plate, the balanced, steady, wonderful, tastes great, and is good for you diet of a church should be that kind of preaching, because um, we, we are all, including the people preaching, tempted to read our own ideas on top of the Scripture, and then to only talk about things that we really care about or that we're currently dealing with or feel passionate about. And so if you start through a book and work all the way through it, it's easier for us to make sure that God's governing what's happening. Does that make sense? Okay. But that's not the only way to do it. Um, there is something that, that we might call topical exposition. And you know what topical is, not what you rub on your body. Topical meaning we take a topic and we think about it. And so the, the equivalent of, a, of an individual doing that is, it, let's say you want to ask, you're struggling with anger, like you keep finding yourself blowing up. And one thing you might do is say, well, what does the Scripture say about anger? And so after you Google it and YouTube it, then you get your Bible and you begin looking for, well, what are verses that talk about the topic of anger? And slowly over time, you can gather those together and understand something of what the Scriptures say uh, about 
anger. That's a very important way to study the Bible, and some sermons should be like that because we need to wrestle with certain topics. You just don't, you don't want that to be your main meal because it's much easier with that kind of studying to, to pick out the verse that you like, that you agree with, and to ignore all the other ones that you dislike or are confront, confrontational about anger or lust or anxiety. Or I mean, you just pick the topic. Does that make sense? This means yes. Great. So, in, in this very, very brief uh, series, we're going we're gonna to do that, the second, the topical exposition in which uh, we're going to be thinking together about the saving one, the saving one. And uh, if it helps, just imagine this is a snack. So we're used to a big feast and we'll have some snacks. You need snacks, right? Can I get a hallelujah? Snacks are great. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Um, Pray for me as we're doing it, because um, this is not my favorite way to do this. And I don't want to tell you um, my, my own thoughts, but rather what God's are. So if this sermon is really terrible, it's your fault, because you chose not to pray. All right? Okay. So here's the question that I'd love to th- us to think together about in this brief uh, series. If topical running to the Bible because we have a question about a topic, be it I'm suffering and I'm sick of suffering, um, or I don't understand it really. I hear people say something about the Spirit, but I, I ain't never seen no Spirit. I don't know what that is. Uh, if questions pr- drive us to the Scriptures, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing because God's Word is true and good. So here's the question. What is salvation. What is salvation? Now, internally, some of you just rolled your eyes because it feels like, well, don't, uh, I should have slept in for this one. I already know that. I've been in church a long time. I've heard many things about salvation. If that's your feeling about it, maybe ask God to, to revive an old concept you haven't thought much about lately, or to um, encourage you with, in fact, something maybe slightly new, or just pray for the people around you who may be less familiar. Uh, by God's grace, we're a church with lots of people uh, around who are newer to Christianity. Um, so we want to ask that question, what is salvation? We'll look briefly at that the next couple of weeks. To get going, would you turn me to Luke chapter 2? Luke 2, and if you're using one of those Bibles in the chair, those blue ones, we're on page uh, 500 in those Bibles. So Luke chapter 2. I start here so that we can very, very briefly, we're not going to spend long in this passage at all, but very briefly say, why would we choose to do this right now? Why would we talk about the saving one uh, this Sunday? Verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, meaning they should be counted. Now, at this period in time, the reason Rome or anybody else would want to count all the people in all the places where they live is to brag about how big they are. That'd be a small part of it, but the majority of it would be to tax you. So tax has been around a long, long, long time, and I'm not hearing any amens for that. So you you had a a living tax. So I'm alive, therefore I I gotta pay something. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. So to make matters worse, for the government to count you, a government that 
the uh, home office, the capital, if you will. This is a, if you're in the land of Israel, this is a long, long ways away, and you are subdued by people you do not like. And in order to comply with their requests, you can't click a little box on uh, the computer or on your phone while you're laying in bed. I, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm still alive. You've got to walk to wherever you were born. That's what's happening. Can you imagine how people would react today if that's what we had to do? <clears throat> there would be complete anarchy. Uh, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, there's an interesting word we don't use at all. Betrothal, at this period in time, is something like what we would call engagement, but not quite. Betrothal was a year period of time in which a couple who are going to get married are tested, essentially. They've made a commitment. We are getting married. Usually, many times, uh, this is an arranged marriage. And there is a period of testing explicitly to see are they going to be sexually faithful? Are they going to wait? Or are they going to sleep around with other people? That's what the betrothal was for. And so serious was it, they were actually referred to or referenced as husband and wife. But they didn't live together and they didn't have any sex. They were betrothed, they were engaged. Another thing that would uh, be interesting to see if someone tried to enact that today. <laughs> I don't think it would work. Um, now, with that in mind, look at the last clause of that verse. Who was with child? You see the problem? Mary was supposed to be demonstrating she wasn't having sex with anybody. And she's pregnant. Imagine what that would have felt like to be Mary, to be, to be Joseph. Some other Christmas year, we'll talk a lot more about that. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this was not a home birth, this was a barn birth. That is gross. Can you imagine having a, ladies, can you imagine having your first child in, a, in a, what probably, I'm going to burst your bubble here, was probably a cave, a cave that was turned into a barn, not the cute little things we put up in our houses. It's probably in the side of a hill, a hole. That has been turned into the spot where somebody stuck their animals. And almost certainly in that manger would have, in that, in that cave would have been a stone manger that the animals ate out of. Imagine a God who would be willing to stoop so low that he would become a baby wrapped in clothes and stuck where goats Cows, sheep, slobber. That is absolutely astonishing. But that's Christianity. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. Or what we said last week, awe. This was the awe of God. But in this case, it was more dread. They were, they, were they were frightened. And so what did the angel say? The angel said, well, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. Okay, so a Savior comes to bring salvation. 
who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a slobbery manger. And suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, would you read the last verse with me? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among whom he is pleased. So this miracle of God becoming also human, God taking on flesh, is called the incarnation. This incarnation happened some 2,000 years ago. And the fact that you're sitting here today is proof that it happened. No churches would exist anywhere if that wasn't true. They all sprung up out of that disgusting, slobbery stone basin. The work of the existence of any church at all grows out of Christmas, what we call Christmas, the birth of this saving one. Why did he come? Well, he came to ensure salvation. Now, Christians use the word salvation a lot. I mean, that's part of our like, vernacular that's in the background. But uh, I'm not so sure we always keep fresh in our minds a sense of what it is. Sometimes words we, we use a lot, we may actually uh, be a little fuzzy on what it, what it is. The Bible uses the word salvation in many different senses. So there's a sense in which if you were in a battle as an Israelite in the Old Testament and across the valley was a much larger army and they were going to slaughter you and you prayed, God, rescue us, help us, save us. And miraculously, you survived that battle. There's a sense in which that's salvation. And we could go and show you many other examples in the Scriptures themselves, but it may be even better if I just use one from ordinary life. Um, several years ago, I'm trying to think back how far it was. It, it, when you get this age, you, that becomes hard on learning. I, I heard that, Mike. Will you say it again for us? Amen. There we go. Um, <clears throat> it's probably been 20 years ago. Um, so I was pastoring a different church. This was not anybody here. But there was a very, very, very sweet couple who, uh, they were in their 30s when they got, late 30s when they got married, early 40s. And very quickly they had a, a child. They were, they were members of our church. They were dear, close friends. Had the privilege of doing their wedding. And pretty quickly they had a, a daughter. And um, I don't remember exactly how old she was, three, maybe four, but they were trying to bring her up to trust Christ, laboring at that. That was a terrifying experience because there's all this angst over, I'm going to screw up this little human. You can understand that, right? I mean, you're a screwed up human. The parents are, right? Come on, this is real. And so they felt like Maybe she had become a Christian. Maybe she, maybe she was saved. Maybe she'd experienced salvation. And yet they weren't sure. And frankly, the only way you ever know for sure is when you're dead. God knows. God's the only one that gets that right 100% of the time. But churches collectively and pastors are supposed to work to try to do what we can to assess in the meantime, as best we can tell, following the breadcrumbs. Uh, has this person come to know Christ? So they asked me if I'd talk with her. And so I was pretty close to her too. We'll just call her Sally. So Sally came over. We sat down on the floor together. We started having a really great conversation. And then I asked her, so why do you want to talk today? She said something like, I want to be baptized. That's something to celebrate, right? A person of any age who's saying, there's this thing called baptism and I want to do it. Um, 
that's a, an occasion to be glad. And so I affirmed her desire. And then I said to her, well, um, you want to be baptized, why? And she said, because of salvation. And I affirmed that, celebrated that. And then I said to her, tell me about God saving you. And she lit up. And she said, um, I was playing in my backyard. And I was by myself, and there was a bee. And I prayed, God, save me. And I ran, and the bee didn't get me. Isn't that precious? That is so precious. It sounded more like, I ran. So it, I mess, it messes it up because I don't have a pretty little four-year-old girl's voice. But was she right? There's a mixed, mixed bag in the room. Some of you are saying yes, some are saying no. I think in a sense, it very well may have been true. Now, why do I say that? There's a scripture that tells us, when I am afraid, I will, who knows it, trust in you. What did she do in that moment? To the extent that, a, I don't however old she was, to the extent that a four-year-old or three-year-old in what they know at that point, can trust, she did. I think there's a very real sense in which, as she ran, maybe God chose to um, delay the flying of the bee. Now, can I prove that? Of course not. Might the bee have just thought, boy, she's quick, I'm not going to catch her. Maybe. There's no way to know. But we, we, we talked about uh, how wonderful it is that she, that she trusted God in that moment and that her instinct was to turn to Him. That's a thing to celebrate. I hope we're a church that understands as kids are growing up or as an adult is just learning what it is to begin to turn to God, that these are things we celebrate. Even if in that moment, she didn't understand the most important kind of salvation. There's still things to encourage. So if, if we're playing darts together, and um, that came out of nowhere, didn't it? If we're playing darts, then what do you want to hit when you throw that dart? You want to hit the center. You want to hit the bullseye. And the Bible gives us a very, very, very clear definition and explanation of what the bullseye of the word salvation is. And it is so, so, so clear and meaningful and powerful. Uh, but if we zoom out a little bit more, there are these other senses of salvation. Like way out here, um, I experienced salvation Hundreds of times, growing up, taking tests at school. God saved me! And He did. I survived. You feel me? But what's at the bullseye? What's the center of salvation? Well, when the Bible talks about the bullseye, the, these kinds of temporary, um, momentary, they don't last forever experiences of salvation that we do have, they're, they're not the bullseye. The bullseye is that Jesus is the Savior who accomplished ultimate salvation. Salvation in the ultimate sense is not about the immediate relief of some physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological need. That's not what it is. That's not what's at the center uh, perhaps we could boil it down this way, and the question would maybe be felt more provocatively. If you had a non-Christian friend come to you and say, um, let me flip it around the other way, actually. If, 
if you were to go to a non-Christian and say, um, I really love you, and this might be awkward, but would you allow me to tell you about my salvation? And that friend responded, salvation from what? What were you saved from? What would you say? Would you have an answer to that a question? Is it that we're saved from some sense of insecurity? Is it that we're saved from ourselves? Is it that we're saved from evil people doing evil things who are around us? I mean, what, what exactly is it that we're saved from? Well, I think the clearest, most compelling answer perhaps in the entire Bible is in Zephaniah. So would you turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1? If you're in those blue Bibles, that's on page 459. Now, I realize that you got up at four and already read all of Zephaniah today. But just to amuse me, and let's look at a couple more verses. Now, this is actually a super obscure book. Many people uh, have probably not read all the way through. If you go to Malachi, the end of your Old Testament, turn a little bit to the left, you'll find it. Zephaniah chapter 1, 14, this is going to answer our question. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet, blast, battle, cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver or rescue or save them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is a terrifying text. Maybe if you've watched uh, any news or read anything in the last 24 hours, I didn't check this morning, but a horrendous storm moved through several states, and at least as of last night, over 100 people were killed by tornadoes in December. What in the world? That day was horrid. Imagine being in your house and some big wall of wind sucking you up plastering you somewhere else so hard that you die. That's awful. That's really awful. That is nothing compared to what Zephaniah is talking about. Zephaniah is pointing to a future day, a day that still lies ahead of us, a day in which God will return. Christ will come. And if you're a Christian... I think almost all the time we talk about that day, we talk about it in a positive way, and it is, because it's the day in which the whole process of what God's been doing in our lives will be complete, all our sorrows will end, and we will be with Him forever. That's going to be a great day, won't it? But church, for anyone who does not know Jesus Christ that day will be more horrible than they could ever imagine. And part of what makes it so horrible is that is it a day that inaugurates a judgment and wrath that will never end. 
And it is what we all, universally, every person who has ever lived, deserves. Because we all go our own way. We all reject God. There's lots of different forms of that. Some of them are more culturally acceptable than others. Some of them even look rather good. The person who obeys all the rules and has their life put together, but isn't relying on God, they're doing that in their own strength, is almost certainly driven by an inward contentious pride. Look at me. Look at what I've done. That's just as repulsive as the rapist. This is what everybody deserves. Merry Christmas. <laughs> to be saved, the bullseye of salvation is to be saved from that day. It's to not have that experience. It's to get ra- uh, <clears throat> it's to get mercy from God on a day when nothing like that is deserved. To be saved is to be saved from God, by God. To be saved is for God to exchange the wrath we deserve and give us a salvation we don't. To be saved is to be a hell-bound and then God so graciously, radically forgives sinners who acknowledge their sin and put trust in Christ. To be saved is to be a hell-bound sinner and then in an instant become a heaven-bound saint. It's a gift. To be saved is to be rescued from a day much more terrible than we could ever Imagine, that is the bullseye of salvation. So, why talk about this at Christmas? Because at Christmas, what are we remembering? We're remembering the birth of the Savior, the saving one. This is why He came. He came and humbled Himself, Christ, Jesus, to that point in order that he would live a perfect life and then die a horrid death in which the wrath from that day in the end, the future day, some of it was placed on Christ for all people who will ever know Jesus Christ. Jesus took it instead of it being stored up for that day. That's why Jesus came. So it makes a perfect Christmas message, even though it's a bit heavy. Now, can you shift with me in your thinking for a moment? This will feel like out of left field. There, there, um, there's a man named R.C. Sproul who uh, wrote a lot of great books. He is now, uh, he's dead. He's with Christ. A great picture. Died just a few years ago. Uh, he says... And this little turn of phrase that I found helpful to understand all this stuff and remember it, that in salvation, there are many senses of it. We're saved from all kinds of things. So cry out to God for help in any time you need help. He loves to save. There's many senses of salvation, but there are also many tenses. Salvation is past, if you're a Christian. That's the way we almost always think of it. But it's also present and it's future. So there's, there's a threefold sense in which the scriptures will talk about salvation. It's that we have been saved, Christians have been saved, it's that Christians are being saved, and it's that Christians will be saved. Those are the three things we'll talk about in these three messages. Now, in our remaining time, we have 15 minutes left. I want to think with you about the fact that if you know Christ, 
You have been saved. It's done. It's in the past. It's settled. You can't mess it up. And God won't take it back. It's secure. And if you're not in Christ, here's what is offered to you by God. Now, the last place I'll ask you to turn is Ephesians chapter 2. These verses describe in really beautiful detail, in a little picture, in one paragraph, of the fact that we have been saved. As I read the first couple of verses, verses 1 to 3, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, if you know God, if you trust Jesus, if you believe in that last day, you will get grace, not wrath. Not because of your effort, not because you're here, not because you're going to put money in the offering plate, not because you're better than the person sitting next to you, but because of Jesus. If that describes you, then listen to who you used to be. Verse 1. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Brothers and sisters, that's who you were. That's who we all were. And that's who, friends, some of us still are. Now, it's easy to think of certain kinds of behaviors as being those kinds of people. But that's us comparing ourselves to each other. And there's always somebody better than you and somebody worse. But that's not the comparison. It's we are creatures, humanity, human beings, are image bearers we've been made to live for, point to, honor God. And He is holy. So to live for Him, with Him, we must say yes to Him every time, in everything. He's the comparison. And there ain't nobody who's done that. So that's who we were. The dead in verse 1 is not talking physical death. It's talking spiritual death. The one, ones of you, the, the, those of you who are as old as I am may remember a movie called Dead Man Walking. I think they stole it from right here. Everybody naturally is born and then lives as a dead human being walking, man or woman, all of us. And again, some forms of that look really great. It doesn't look like, ah, that's a wicked person. But that's God's analysis. We're born with a bent away from God. We're born guilty because we're in Adam. And then like you do when you go get ice cream, we get a lot more scoops. We add to Adam's guilt with our own. And it's a really big bowl of ice cream. <laughs> so much so that we could never eat it. We could never absorb with any kind of good actions on our part a resolution of the problem. Our bellies would explode. It doesn't work. And if you look at verse 2 and 3, it says not only were we dead, but we physically were living in opposition to God. Sin has a way of making us um, be bent inward, in which everything is about us. And it's self-destructive. It makes you more and more and more miserable. We made um, choices in which we become enslaved to our own sinful passions. Now, I think the first two verses of chapter 4 
are the two most beautiful verses in the Bible. But God. But God. All would be hopeless. Everyone would get wrath on that future day. But God. But God being, listen how he's described, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When? When you were doing a, a pretty good job obeying. That's the temptation to think. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There it is. Do you hear it? Past tense. Now, this will, if you don't like grammar, just tune out for a moment, okay? So the two of you, let me speak to you. Um, the, the, the letter of Ephesians was written in Greek, and there's a way in Greek, there's a, there's a verb form called a perfect verb form, and it means this thing happened in the past, and the effects of it go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, even into today. And that's actually the form of the verb. It means this thing is so finished and final and settled that it happened in the past and it's still true today. You have been saved and the effects of it will go on and on and on. We talk that way, we just don't realize that's what we're doing. If somebody says, uh, how long have you lived in Tempe? Then you say, well, I have lived here. And you give. So there was a point in which that became true, and now it's gone on and on and on. Make sense? So, Christian, let's think about this in a way that's commensurate to what it is. Notice how God is described here. He's rich in mercy. One practical application. Um, we like Christmas cookies. Amen? Okay? So, some of you like Christmas cookies with sprinkles on them. Amen? All right. You're getting less and less enthusiastic with me, but I'm going to keep at this. <laughs> you like cookies with ice, icing on them. Lots of sprinkles. Um, Christian, the reason why when a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, or, if you like, tomorrow. You do something offensive to God. You don't say yes to Him. Instead, you buck His good care and rule and authority and word. The reason why you don't immediately lose your salvation is because God is always sprinkling more mercy on your day. And His mercy sprinkles don't ever run out. There's always more of them than there is of your mistakes and failures. That's the best cookie I've ever heard of. For by grace you have been saved. It is done. It is settled. You can't mess it up. You didn't begin this. You can't end this. It is a gift of God. Don't believe me? Well, look at the final section. Verse 8. For... By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's by grace. God's grace is what brings the sprinkles, not your obedience, not your effort, not your labor, not your decisions. His grace. And it comes through the vehicle of faith. And that's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in Him. What a passage. Christian, if you are in Christ, if you trust Him, love Him, you've been saved by Him, you're counting on that last day that you will hear from Him, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've depended on the gospel. Then you are, this passage says, you are His workmanship. I don't know about you, but that does nothing for me. What the heck is a workmanship? Another translation says, you are His masterpiece. A masterpiece is an artist's prize, most glorious piece. If we think of a painting, for example. So, brothers and sisters, because God has awakened you to new life in Him, and you trusted Him, and He saved you, then you are now His Mona Lisa. And as His Mona Lisa, He has laid out for you good works. So while we're not saved by our works, it turns out we are saved, in fact, for our works. And there's where I'd like to kind of wind this down and try to help you feel the implications of that. Maybe you don't, um, maybe Christian, you feel like everything but a masterpiece, a display of the glory and grace and mercy of God. Maybe you don't feel like that at all. Maybe you feel like the scrap piece of art that not even anybody in that yard sale would pick up. You've just been trashed. And that you have no good works to offer, that there's no contribution you can make. I mean, there's always somebody else that knows more and does more, they're more capable. Or I've done X, Y, Z, that means I can't really be useful to God. Friend, you have been saved. It's done. And therefore, you are a display of the glory and grandeur and mercy and grace of God. That is what's true. And God, in His great mercy, desires that you not be bored in life, that you be bound up in whatever it is that He would have you to do that would honor Him, point to Him, be faithful to the kinds of lives that He's given us. There's a bazillion ways to do that. And if you don't know, God, I have no idea what good works you would want me to do. Then start asking Him. Say, God, this morning, before you ever get out of bed, in in the 1% of you that is coherent, God, your scriptures say today you've prepared good works. I don't know what they'll be. And there's a lots of stuff on my list. And I've got a job and work and shower and conflict and family things and whatever else. But God, in the midst of them, help me do those in such a way that they honor you. That makes them good works. And in me, as I'm going through them, help me to trust you and grow. Spiritual growth is a good work that God does in us as we say yes to Him. And Lord, is, if, if there's something I'm not planning, help, but it's a good work that you would have for me help, me, help me to notice it. Do that over and over and over. Over and 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 over. Because God has them for you. And if you do that between now and next Sunday, every day, or the ones you remember, and nothing feels any different, then maybe go to a friend who knows you well, another brother or sister in Christ, and say, I got no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. What's, what are the good works I'm supposed to do? What, what do you think, brother or sister, that I have some 
gifting or capacity or you notice a, a vivaciousness about me when this thing comes around. It's almost certain that if someone knows you well and they're a Christian and you're a Christian and you're around each other a lot, they see things about you that you don't see. That's one way we serve each other. Church, the bullseye, the dart has hit right in the dead center because you are not dead anymore. You are alive. You have been saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your believers in the room would be tremendously encouraged today and that this Christmas season would be different as a result of what we've seen in your word today. And God, uh, we pray we would serve each other well by if, 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 if we're asked by somebody we're close to, another member, what do, I feel useless. Is there anything I can do? What do you see? God, help us to be gracious and kind and patient and affirm and to see what it is that you're doing. It's often hard for us to understand ourselves. And God, we want to revel in what you've done for us, but God, but God. So I pray we would even feel physically, emotionally, the effect of what you have done. And Father, in, in your great mercy and kindness and power, if there's anyone here who is not yet saved, would you make them alive? In Jesus' name, amen.